Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, just in time for Valentine's Day, a Muslim dating app for those who feel swipe left out. We're taught our whole lives don't talk to the opposite sex, and now all of a sudden we're like, hey, there's a Muslim dating app, so it's okay, go for it. When we just put you in there in a pool of people, you're supposed to swipe, match, and know what to do. So I was like, you know what, let's, let's change it up a bit. And let's challenge the patriarchy. Let's give women the ability to make the first move and take charge. And then a new oral history project explores what it means to be Muslim in Brooklyn. One of the things that I think I found that was most surprising to me was how remarkably unremarkable being Muslim was for our narrators. And this is something that you really get when you do an oral history interview that takes you into the inner life of someone in terms of how they experience life from their perspective. In the eternal words of Pat Benatar, love is a battlefield. And dating apps like Tinder and Grindr are the trenches where singles are getting mustard gassed. Modern love is hard enough, but imagine the unique challenges facing Muslim women living in Trump's America, especially if they come from cultures where traditionally a suitable husband was just a visit to the matchmaker away. Over the past few years, there has been a flurry of apps targeting young Muslims looking for dating and romance. But for the most part, they have been designed by men, continuing a tradition of denying women full agency over their own love lives. Enter Eshk, an app that aims to put women in the driver's seat. To tell us more, we welcome the app's creator, Maryam Bahadori, to the show. Hi. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So you yourself are Afghani-American, yes, right? Yes, first generation born. So yeah. tell me, um, a generation or two ago in Afghanistan, how might a couple have met and gotten married? Uh, it was literally the families knew of a single guy or a girl. And the families would just talk to me like, hey, I have this individual. He's getting his medical degree. I think it would be a good match for your daughter. The families would talk. And that's about it. Basically, they would just get together through an arranged marriage. Is that how your parents met? Yeah, so it was arranged. Um, they, they had opportunities to see each other, but they had obviously a chaperone with them. But it was an arranged marriage as well. But it turned into love. And so tell me a little bit about the inspiration for your app. So I noticed um, growing up, I was always taught, just like other Muslims, we're always taught not to talk to the or engage with the opposite sex our whole lives. My culture tells me not to date, but then Western society is telling me, well, that's how are you supposed to get to know someone to get married? And when I would tell my friends about the whole concept of arranged marriages or that I have to marry a Muslim or someone in my culture, they just didn't understand it. They didn't get it. Um, and then... After college and a little bit after that as well, when I got into my mid-20s, I noticed there were dating apps, there were dating websites for our matrimony websites, actually, for Muslims. But there was a gap where it was majority men on them and advertisements were just women, women with makeup caked on them, women with hijabs and makeup caked on them. It was all representation of a stereotypical Muslim, not a Muslim here in the West or in European um, millennial Muslims, basically. So I noticed there wasn't really a platform out there for millennial Muslims. The applications that were already out there targeting millennial Muslims were, as you mentioned, built by men for men. I noticed that women were being misrepresented, and again, with the advertising, the types of women that they were showing. So I decided to go a different route and be like, you know what, why don't I give 
the woman the control of to uh, the ability to control her narrative a lot of the complaints i was getting from women i just went out there to go talk and see like women that have engaged in these applications and their experiences and one of the biggest things i heard from them was that they would get bombarded by awkward icebreakers and men didn't really know how to make the first move and the conversation was horrible that's not a muslim only problem just so you know oh that's yeah yeah like no, in general yeah. Yeah. yeah so in general so it, it was like but then again we're taught our whole lives don't talk to the opposite sex and now all of a sudden we're like hey there's a muslim dating app so it's okay go for it when we just put you in there in a pool of people you're supposed to swipe match and know what to do so i was like you know what let's let's change it up a bit and let's challenge the patriarchy let's give women the ability to make the first move and take charge so we actually want to test this out back in 2016 i'm like okay would Muslim women actually make the first move? Because dating was already taboo in our culture and in our religion. The word doesn't even exist in our vocabulary. So it's something we didn't even know what it was. So we tested it out. We put a beta out there in the New York City area, in the tri-state area. We're like, let's see what people do. And it was amazing. Women, I was getting doctors, engineers, nurses, entrepreneurs, women that were downloading the app, doing ama putting amazing pictures up and putting great bios up. And my theory was, if women make the first move, then men obviously will work harder on their profiles, put better pictures, not the mirror selfie that you're always seeing or lifting up their shirts and like showing their abs. Posing with a drug tiger. Exactly. That was very popular yeah, exactly. For a while. So, you know, I was like, oh, so on our app, I bet you men are going to like do amazing on their profiles. Nope. Same thing. Same, same thing in terms of the selfies and taking pictures with sunglasses and groups and, and or taking pictures that didn't even show their face and their bio, they would put like nothing. They would be like, I love me and I love biryani, or which is like a rice dish in our culture. <laughs> and it just wasn't enough information. Swipe on that. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh man, you listen to that. So it was just like, okay, my women, like users are really putting effort and their intention is to meet a quality guy but the guys are still not trying. So for them, it was just like another app that they downloaded to just see what's out there. And I can't tell you how many Muslim men I've met where you'll have Tinder and then you'll have our competitors on their app as well. So other like Minder or Muzzmatch. So it's like, okay, is Tinder like your weekend app? And then Minder and Muzzmatch is like when you're ready to, you know, settle down. Interesting. So, yeah. and, and do you think that that is the same for Muslim women as well? Like, are Muslim women as inclined to use Tinder as perhaps Muslim men are? Or? Um, I think they're, women, Muslim women are more reluctant to use any dating app. Mm. There's a lot of stigmas attached to oh, anything that a woman can do. There's a lot of, in terms of the gender norms within our culture, there's a lot that men can do and women cannot. Um, and there's a reputation that we have to uphold. So if a woman goes out there and dates, she'll be labeled as someone that might be, I wanna say a hoe or promiscuous, or you know, it, it looked bad on the family name because why is this girl constantly going out there to date? But if the guy goes out there to date, the excuse is, okay, he needs experience or he's allowed to do that. Um, and in our religion, it's okay if a guy kind of steps outside of the religion, but then that's under the assumption that the counterpart will convert into Islam. So. I see. What do, you, what do you think most Muslim parents would think of their children using dating apps of any kind? 
So I don't think they would be happy about it uh, because it does steer away from the traditional norms of arranged marriages or keeping within the culture. But I'm hoping that by building a platform, it comes from a, a Muslim woman. And what we're doing is bringing in a similar community that they would be more open to it. And I feel like parents that have um, that had children during the 80s and 90s have kind of like opened up have become more open-minded to the fact that we might need to leverage technology to meet each other now because it's not the same anymore and a, a lot of millennials are challenging the traditional norms so i think parents some parents are starting to be more open i know my dad is because i'm 31 which to some people it's like okay you're 31 and you're a woman like what's wrong with you is there something wrong with you no there's nothing wrong with me maybe from the second I graduated college I had ambition and I had other <laughs> things I wanted to do rather than just settle down and get married and right. rely on the guy to take care of me and I, I want to ask a little bit about yourself so you said that you're 31 which yeah. I know um, I was reading one thing about a, a Pakistani matchmaking service and there was a binder of doctors and then a binder of overaged which was yes. any woman over 30 which is crazy especially in New York um, yeah, but right. tell me a little bit about like were your parents encouraging you towards a more arranged or like a semi-arranged situation so my dad he's more of a open-minded, progressive Muslim man, which isn't really typical um, from an older man who's almost in his 70s, who is in his 70s right now. So he's not pushing it on me, but he's like, I'm 31 and I'm going this entrepreneurial route, which already scares him because my siblings, one's a pilot, a doctor, one has her PhD, MBA. Oh, and here's, good, good yeah, here's sure. Mary. I'm trying to, he keeps telling people I'm building an app to find people's destiny. He doesn't really know to explain to our family. That's a what good tagline, I, I think. Yeah. You should use that. Yeah, I know. I was like, thanks, Dad. You, we're also talking about Muslim culture as if it's monolithic. And Islam is like the second biggest religion in the world. Mm -hmm. And in America, we're talking about, and a Muslim community that you know spans different continents. So I'm right. curious about what are the challenges with that in creating a Muslim dating app that caters to people from different heritages, different cultures, different nationalities? Yeah, so Muslims are very dynamic, and I hate describing it as someone as more liberal or conservative. I feel like that's a subjective matter because um, what like what describes or what is a definition of a liberal Muslim in terms of a conservative Muslim? Some of us, like right now, I am a Muslim woman, but I don't physically look like a Muslim woman. You don't see me wearing the head cover. I don't necessarily practice um, Islam. I don't pray five times a day, but I still identify as a Muslim woman. Um, we're hoping, well, I'm hoping that the app, it's bringing together a community so it sets the stage in terms of, you're not just joining a general dating app, you're joining a dating app that's bringing other Muslims together that might have the same intention as you. So it's easier to launch something like this here in the U.S. when you have a mix of Western um, cultural norms mixed with your culture as well, and you're not alone. There's a high population of Muslims here in New York, the Bay Area, Michigan, Detroit having one of the highest Muslim population, um, especially of millennial Muslims. Once we scale and go abroad, you do have to keep in mind um, the differences in ideology of other countries. So it's not like we can go take Eshk to Saudi Arabia right now and think it's going to be a hit or countries like Iran, because right now there's dating apps that are blocked in these countries and they've actually created their own. So they won't let outsiders in, but they've created their own internal dating apps, which they don't call dating. It's matrimony. And what does Eshk mean? So Eshk means love. 
And it's not really the cliche love. The real word is ishq. We just put a Persian twang to it. So it's ishq. And it means love, but we want it to mean something. We want you to use your own definition. So it could be self-love, to have enough self-love and confidence, um, especially in a woman, to make the move and to take control of your narrative. Or it could mean find someone that shares the same love for something that you do. The whole point of the app is to put as much information as possible to actually get to know someone that has something in common with you. We promote love. We want you to meet. We want you to date. The whole purpose of having a successful marriage or the whole point of having um, being happy with someone or falling in love is to find someone you have something in common with. So that's how we're kind of like using the word in any way that defines how you would like to use it. And is there an option for women seeking women or men seeking men? So that's that's one of the questions we get a lot. Um, we have been getting a lot of emails from people that are asking, because right now we're trying to hype up the fact that we are launching soon. Um, and from our 2016 launch, we've gotten a lot of feedback in terms of what to add, what not to add. And one of the biggest things is, are we open to the LGBT community? And I've gotten emails of stories of men and women that ask me if it's available and they actually let me know what they're going through. It's it's as if I'm I feel like I'm their therapist and it's I try to like, you know, I email them back and assure them like, hey, this is a platform that is open. I mentioned Muslims are dynamic. Um, our religion is based on more of a heteronormative belief belief system. So the traditional um, definition of marriage is a man and a woman. But gay Muslims do exist. That is another gap that is out there, and there's a lot of people that are in denial about that. There's a lot of people that, in their opinion, you cannot be Muslim and gay. On our platform, there is not necessarily a button that you can press that says, like, hey, I'm a gay Muslim, so only show me other, um, or you cannot click on same sex. But we have a dating version, and then with a click of a button, it turns into friends, which is like same sex. So a woman can look through same sex women, but it's not necessarily to get in a relationship, but it's more for friends. And we just we just tell you guys to let your messages or conversations kind of steer it from there. So we are open to the LGBT community. Um, there's no feature that necessarily says that it is for same sex. Is that a direction that you might move into in that the is future? Some, so that's something we're actually looking into because I don't want to necessarily just, I don't want to just put a button that allows you to see same sex in the dating version without more uh, privacy and security settings. That will cause a lot of issues um, in terms of maybe even increased harassment. People putting themselves out there, it's a very big deal. It's a big deal in general to come out, but to be a Muslim and feel empowered enough to come out as a gay Muslim, it's a big deal. So we want to make sure that I, I kind of want to have more focus groups, do a little more research on my own and with my team in terms of that specific niche and demographic before we actually allow that to be on the platform to just make sure that we have the right privacy settings for them, the right security settings, and to prevent any type of bullying or harassment that might come out of it. I'm curious about if you have any success stories. And I know that Eshk hasn't officially launched, but you did do a beta test. Yes. Um, can you tell me if anyone has 
has found love on Yes, your app? actually, and surprisingly, um, I do have one success story that came out of the beta. And our intentions were not, we did not think at all when we launched the beta that we would get any success stories. It was, I was just I for just, like functionality, yeah, right? I was like, let's test it out. Let's see how it is. Let's see what people thought. And I actually have a success story. Literally three days ago, I got the wedding invitation from them, um, locals of New Jersey. Um, and they met. It, it was great. It, and they're both Muslim. One is, uh, the, uh, the man is Pakistani. The girl is Syrian. And they met on the app, started a conversation. They didn't live too far from each other. They met, and now I believe it's been a year and a half that they've been together, um, almost a year that they've been engaged, and that's it. It took it from there. So we, it, was, it was really exciting to see that not only did I prove that this model will work, but we just got we just got a couple together, and it was just a testing phase. So we didn't think anything was going to come out of it. So it, was, it makes me really happy to see that two people actually met and they actually fell in love, and now they're inviting me to their wedding. So that's exciting. That's great. You have to go. Of course, I'm going to go. I would never <laughs> say no to a wedding. Oh my god. Tell me about how you think Ashk is doing its part to, say, dismantle traditional gender structures or power roles. Uh, so one of the biggest things that I like to say is cheers to the systematic breakdown of the patriarchy. Uh, we're really trying to challenge gender norms, and we're really trying to make a platform where it's not just about swiping in the technology, but we want to add to the revolution of what's happening in this shift of women mm -hmm. really making the first move in every aspect of their lives and not just in dating. So the app officially launches this week? Yes, it's actually going to launch right after Valentine's Day. Great. So people can download it all the places they download yeah. apps. Yes. Yeah, so we're going to, yeah, it's only available on iTunes okay. for now. Mm -hmm. And we're going to launch in New York City, Chicago, and Washington, D.C., which has one of the highest uh, populations of working professional Muslims. So our goal is to try out those three main cities and the, the tri-state area of New York City and kind of see how it is. And we're going to test it out again. So our, our whole goal is to keep testing the model test the technology as well. So we really want to build the reputation before we actually go out and scale. So we're hoping to hit the, the West Coast by the summer. Great. Miriam, thank you so thank much you for so joining us and congratulations. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Do you think Islam is at war with the West? I think Islam hates us. There's something, there's something there that there's a tremendous hatred there. There's a tremendous hatred. We have to get to the bottom of it. There is an unbelievable hatred of us. In, in Islam itself? Uh, you're going to have to figure that out. That, of course, was Donald Trump responding to Anderson Cooper in 2016. And by us, of course, he meant Americans, white Christian Americans. Trump was energizing his base, doubling down on his proposed Muslim ban, and in doing so, trying to erase the historical fact that Muslims have been part of the American story since before the country was founded. Many scholars contend that Muslim explorers made their way to the New World during the era of the conquistadors. And the history of Islam in the U.S. is as fraught as the history of the country itself, in part because 10 to 15 percent of the men and women kidnapped in Africa and sold into slavery are believed to have been Muslim. 
Here in New York, Brooklyn is home to one of the oldest mosques in America, and it is also home to one of the largest and most diverse Muslim populations in the country. They're from Egypt, Pakistan, Puerto Rico, Azerbaijan, Somalia, Yemen, and more, and their identities and heritage have shaped the borough in countless ways. A new project by the Brooklyn Historical Society seeks to record and amplify the stories of Brooklyn's Muslim communities. And to tell us more, we're joined by the director of the Muslims in Brooklyn Oral History Project, Zahir Ali. Welcome back to 112 BK. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about the project and how it came about. The project came about because of the silences that we found in the archive. You know, the history that you recited about the history of Muslims in the United States and certainly in New York City is a history that is hard to find in traditional conventional archives. And one of the ways that oral historians have served these silences is by adding more stories and adding people's actual voices and stories to the archive. And so we saw the need to add to that history, to add to that knowledge of that history. And so we embarked on this project, Muslims in Brooklyn, uh, not only to add their voices to the archive, but to amplify their voices so that and fellow Brooklynites and New Yorkers uh, and Americans could learn more about who we are as, as a community, as neighborhoods, as a borough, as a nation by learning about our shared religious heritage. And you're an oral historian. Yes. And I think one of the interesting things about written history is that so often it tells a very limited view of the story of victors. Um, and so oral history can come in to, as you say, fill in the gaps. That's right. Um, I'm curious about what some of the earliest written records of Muslims in New York are that you found. So the earliest records we found in um, Brooklyn are in newspaper articles of early gatherings that were held for the what is called the Eid celebration or either there are two uh, major festivals in the Muslim holiday calendar and we see some happening in the early 20th century um, but I think the earliest records really coincide with um, the founding of one of the earliest communities which is the American Mohammedan Society which was founded in Williamsburg by um, people who had uh, immigrated to the United States from the Eastern European, Lithuanian, Belarus region. They're often referred to as Tatar, the Tatar community. And they established that uh, society in uh, 1907. Um, and by 1931, they had opened up a mosque, uh, which still stands on Power Street in Williamsburg. It is the oldest continuously running mosque in New York City, in New York State, and I think uh, one of the oldest in the country. Tell me about how many people you interviewed for this project and how you set about finding them. We interviewed, we, we set about to do 50 interviews, uh, which is a fairly substantial uh, amount for an oral history. And when we do oral history interviews, an oral history uh, interview can be two to three hours. And our commitment as an institution is to transcribe those interviews, to catalog, describe those interviews, to archive those interviews in order for them to be accessible. It isn't enough just to record an interview and store it away. We interview people who had stories of migration within the United States to Brooklyn. We interviewed people who had stories of being born in Brooklyn several generations deep. We interviewed people who um, had a family that was rooted in traditional expressions of Islam.
Islam. We also interviewed people who had um, made a spiritual journey to Islam during their life. And it was really important for us to do this to show the, the diversity of experiences and people and nationalities and ethnicities and even gender identities that comprise uh, people who identify themselves as Muslim. We were, I really, I think we really wanted to do is shatter the idea that you could figure out who a Muslim is. And so this collection hopefully helps challenge people's narrow sense of, of who a Muslim is. And how do you go about finding the people who represent yeah. Islam in Brooklyn. Did you work with different mosques? Did you ask imams to recommend people? Did you place a Craigslist ad? How do you find people? <laughs> well, we did. We, you know, we started doing research, and and through research, began identifying important stories. You know, whether it's the story of the Williamsburg community, the story of historic uh, mosques or mosques communities or community organizations. We didn't want to limit it just to religious institutions because, like any other religious group. We know that there are people who identify themselves as Muslim who may not be regular attendees at a religious center, right? So we uh, just did research. We began canvassing. We certainly talked to people in communities. We talked to elders. We talked to young people. We talked to activists. We talked to organizers to get a sense of who we should talk to, who had stories that were interesting. And it was it was hard to narrow down, you know, I'll to bet. like, this is, this is going to be who we go after. After. But it was a. I think it was a list that was formed organically. You know, I think we definitely came in with an idea. There were some people we already knew that we had to talk to or try to talk to. But we kept it. We kept a space. We kept a lot of space open to see as we progressed with talking to people what kinds of stories and and narrators would emerge. Let's play a little bit of one of the interviews. Um, as anyone who lives in Brooklyn knows, each building used to be something else. Masjid Khalifa, when it was purchased by Minister Malcolm, it was a dance hall. Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. my father used to party here when he was like, oh, I know this place. And, and Masjid Taqwa was a cocktail lounge. It was called Earl's Cocktail Lounge, which I myself knew because I, that block was in, this, in, the, in, the, in the time of the 60s and 70s, it was heroin central. And in the 80s, late 80s and 90s, it was Crack Central. So that block was always notorious, and that was a cocktail lounge. Yassine Masjid was, the one in East New York, was a youth center. Um, large building, nice building. And uh, they, they purchased. And Masjid Mukminun, if I'm not mistaken, was a slaughterhouse. So, and that, that's somewhat indicative of the history of, of uh, black uh, uh, masjids, in, at least in New York. And we're talking particularly in Brooklyn, that it was not uncommon for a house to be a masjid, like in the case of State Street, which was a a, a townhouse or a brownstone that was a masjid or to convert a cocktail lounge or a dance hall or a, or a youth center or a slaughterhouse into a masjid. What I really like about that clip is that it shows how Muslims are both 
responding to and also transforming the space, the actual physical built environment of Brooklyn. And I think one of the things we do as, as a historical society, Brooklyn historical society is place-based history. And um, what makes some of the experiences of Muslims in Brooklyn so unique is the actual, the physical surrounding, the physical environment. And um, the narrator, Sheikh uh, Abdullah Rashid, talks about um, a historic community um, that was um, founded by Malcolm X when he was in the Nation of Islam. But I think it also highlights one of the kind of narrative threads of Islam in the United States is that for many people who embrace or celebrate um, their, their religious heritage, they see Islam as a reform a movement or as a movement of moral reform. And so being able to transform a space that was, say, previously used for selling alcohol or a bar or something like that into a sacred space, I think is as much part of the story of Islam uh, in, in Brooklyn and the United States as is the actual transformation of the building. That's a beautiful metaphor. Yes. One of the things that I think must be unusual about being Muslim in Brooklyn is that the diversity of the community is quite different than you might see, say, in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. where maybe if you go to mosque, everybody is from Somalia. Yeah. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about, about that? And did people mention what that was like to have people of the same religion come from so many different nationalities and cultures? You know, it's really interesting. Um, there's a famous quote, and I'm going to paraphrase, of, of Martin King, where he says, uh, Sunday is the most segregated hour in American life. Um, what's interesting is um, for Muslims, and Friday, uh, the congregational prayer is Friday afternoon, uh, might be the most <laughs> integrated hour in American life because you can go to most any mosque and see in the ranks of people lined up for prayer. And so you have that kind of diversity. And you also have, um, as is typical of any other kind of ethnic formation, in the city, um, very specific neighborhoods that you could go to and identify with specific groups of people. And, and these aren't in contradiction with each other. They are a kind of creative and accepted tension. You know, in Islam, there's this Quranic verse that says, you know, where God is speaking to his people saying, we made you into different people and tribes and nations so that you may know each other, not despise each other. And so in Brooklyn, you have both of that. You have a celebration of that diversity, and you also have a celebration of very distinct identities. If you, Brooklyn is such a, a diverse uh, borough, and we're always interacting with each other at in places of points of contact, whether it's in transit, in places of business, in schools, uh, and certainly in in the case of Islam, in mosques. And but we also have our home neighborhoods where we you can go to find unique expressions of food and art and culture and civic engagement. May I ask, do you identify as Muslim? I do. Um, I imagine <laughs> this might have been quite a personally meaningful project for you, and I'm wondering if there was anything that you found um, surprising in conducting these interviews. Yeah, you know, 
One of the things that I think I found that was most surprising to me was how remarkably unremarkable being Muslim was for our narrators. And this is something that you really get when you do an oral history interview that takes you into the inner life of someone in terms of how they experience life from their perspective. But when you get beyond that distinction, people saw themselves in terms of their relationships to their parents, to their children, to their spouses, to their partners. They saw uh, themselves either as a young person or an older person. They saw themselves as either a, a Brooklynite or someone who was new to Brooklyn. They saw themselves as an artist, as a musician, as an activist, as a teacher, as a doctor, as a lawyer, as an educator, that being Muslim was given. And so they didn't need to speak about it. And so what I came away from this project was that for many people, Islam is not a box that you put people in, but a box that people stand on. It's foundational to people's identity, but it, isn't, it doesn't tell the full story. We're in a moment of intense Islamophobia uh, with President Trump's Muslim ban, his trying to restrict people uh, from predominantly Muslim countries from coming to the U.S. And... I feel like there is a sense of othering of mm -hmm. Muslim Americans, and this project aims to combat that, yes. I imagine, by, by telling the personal stories of, of people, mm -hmm. um, as you mentioned, about as mothers, as community members, as, as friends and, and families. Can you tell me a little bit about why you think it's important that these stories be heard and how you aim to do that? I think these stories are important to be heard because this is part of all of our story. And, you know, I think it's important for us to understand when we talk about America and we're, we're talking about everyone in America and the idea that this is a country just for a certain group of people or a certain religion just doesn't, it isn't borne out in the history. It isn't borne out in the, in, in the actual lived experience of, of people who are Americans and who live here. And I think it's also important to understand the integral uh, role that Muslims have played in the shaping of the American story. And so to try to edit us out <laughs> um, is going to leave a lot out of that story out. It is going to leave us with, you know, question marks about understanding who we are as a nation. And if people want to hear them, where do they go? So you can go to brookenhistory.org forward slash oral history, and you'll see our catalog of oral history collections, including the Muslims in Brooklyn oral histories. And this is a hard question, I'm sure, but maybe you can leave us with one particular story or anecdote <laughs> that, <laughs> that has stuck in your memory or that is personally meaningful to you. It changes. You know, like this is like asking someone their favorite child. And I'm going to talk about the child that's on my mind today. Um, I think one of the stories that, that really um, lingers with me was, is one of a young narrator, uh, Mohammed Fayez, who is 24 at the time we did the interview, I think. Um, and he, he talks about the complicated identity uh, of being Muslim and, and his experience uh, in a group that he and his friends formed called Messy Muslims. And I think, um, you know, a lot of us, when we think of religious people, again, we think of their adherence to all of these religious dictates and doctrines. And I think like every other religious people or spiritually minded people, people strive to do those things, but they also live, themselves, live their lives as human beings. And I think this, his, his story is one of someone who struggles with adherence to the faith, 
but very much returns back to it over and over again as a source of strength and peace and, and solace. Great. Well, people can hear his story and that of 49 others at the URL. One more time, please. Brooklynhistory.org forward slash oral history. Great. So here, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Point Solo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 